Amen. Well, good morning, Pillar Church. Pastor Canaan here. Go ahead and open in your copy of God's Word to the book of Galatians as we're going to continue in our series in the book of Galatians. Go ahead and open there, Galatians chapter 6. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story of my fraudulent past. There's any kids in here? Any kids in here? Some, some, of the, some of you who used to be kids and some of y'all who are kids, y'all going to remember this and some of y'all not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. Y'all remember that class that we used to take in school called penmanship? See, now, if you're too young, you never took penmanship. Us old heads, we took a class called penmanship. The whole point of the class was to train you to write organized and neatly. That was the whole point of the class. Teach you how to write. I know that this generation doesn't handwrite anything anymore, but... That's the reality of my growing up is we had to learn how to handwrite. And one of the things that happens is that the teacher is able to decipher whose work is whose based off their handwriting. Now, my penmanship teacher was the same as my English language arts teacher. And I don't know if y'all had a teacher like mine. I won't say her name in case she ever finds this online. But she used to in English class, take points off my English papers because of poor penmanship. Not even in penmanship class. I used to hate that. Because I would be up all night studying, grinding, researching, writing. Uh, uh, uh. I get the best argument. I steal arguments from someone else's pen. Uh, I do all this stuff. Don't do that. I'm just saying it's what I did. I'm being honest. The Lord has changed me. I can be honest. I do all this work Hand in the paper, and she'll be like, well, I'm taking points off for poor penmanship. And I'm like, but this is English language arts. My English is legit. And she would say no, and so I went dark. I went rogue. I went fraudulent. I found the best handwriters in my English language arts class, and I had them handwrite my stuff for me. I thought I was a G. I thought I figured out the system. Now I was getting accused of cheating. Because I'd hand in a paper with none of my penmanship on it. And so I would plead my case to the teacher. I'm like, Miss, I almost, almost said her name. Mrs. So-and-so, it's my answers. I promise you they're my answers. Well, it's so-and-so's handwriting. I know, but they don't say that word. That's me. I say this word. So finally, she gave me grace. She forgave me. I begged for forgiveness. I got a couple points knocked off for the cheating thing. I did it. She gave me grace. And it turns out that your penmanship is an, is an indication of authenticity in your writing. Well, in the first century, a lot of authors or uh, people who have their name attributed to certain books, they used to use a thing called dictation. Dictation is when you speak what you're going to say to somebody who's going to write it. And that somebody is called a scribe. A scribe was trained in listening and good penmanship. So they'd listen to what you said and write the words that you said. The Apostle Paul, see, I was just trying to be biblical, but she didn't know. The Apostle Paul used to use this all the time. And what's crazy is we miss it 
because we have a bad habit as believers of starting books of the Bible, but not getting to the end of that book before we start a new book. But if you look at what the scriptures say, look, look, let's get his face out of here. Romans chapter one. Who's the author? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. This is the apostle Paul writing to the Romans, right? Get to the end of the letter. Look what it says. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you. Paul used a scribe as he verbally communicated his letter to this dude. The apostle Peter did it too. Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the chosen. Peter is the author of this letter, but when you get to the end of the letter, it says, through Silvanius, who wrote this letter. Knowing how possible it would have been to be fraudulent like me and write an apostle's name at the beginning of a letter and say that I was simply the scribe and add my own doctrine into it would be very easy at this point. Because no one is seeing what Peter's handwriting looks like. No one is seeing what Paul's handwriting looks like. And so how does a culture that uses dictation be able to tell if what is written is authentic? Same, we have the same dilemma now. We are the typing computer generation. The email was sent. How do I know that somebody didn't hack your email and sent me that letter? Well, in today's day and age, we use something called a signature. It's your own handwriting that you have to put at the bottom of whatever document it is to verify that this is yours or that you read it, that somehow your hands authentically touched this document. And the Apostle Paul used to use the same exact methodology in his writings where he would write the last section of his letters as an authenticating indication that everything in the letter is truly from him. Look at the end of, of 2 Thessalonians. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Not the whole letter, just this ending. I'm writing it with my own hand. Now check this out, which is an authenticating mark in every letter. This is how I write. So when the recipients, when the Thessalonians get this letter, they see the good penmanship, and then at the end, they see a different lettering. Shaped different, looks a little different. And Paul's like, this is me. This is how I write. He does it again. First, uh, first Corinthians 16. This greeting is in my own hand. Paul. He did it again in Colossians 4. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul's doing the same thing in our text in Galatians chapter 6 that we're about to read right now. Look what he says in Galatians 6 verse 11. Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. Paul is authenticating his message to the Galatians because his message is controversial for them. So he wants them to know I am truly saying everything that you've read thus far in this letter that you have received. 
Now, it's possible that um, Paul had poor vision, poor eyesight as a result of his many beatings, which may be a reason why he's known for having distinctly large letters, like large, like actual letters, not large written letters, but large handwriting. But that's a, a rabbit trail that we're not going to pursue because I don't think Paul is as concerned with us trying to figure out why he writes a certain way. I think he's more concerned about the fraudulent gospel that the Galatians are believing, which is why he says, this is what I'm, I'm writing this to you, not so that you can observe my large letters, but so that you can know that I, the apostle of the Lord Jesus, have truly said what I said to you. Teachers are trying to convince the Galatian people that the way to God, the way to peace, the way to justification. By the way, what does justification mean? To be declared. Y'all can talk. To be declared righteous, to be made right with God, right? To be declared right with God, to receive peace, to, to get close to God, you had to do two things. This is what the false teachers were teaching. And it's crazy because many of us believe the same false teaching. The first thing that they, had, that they said is you have to believe on Jesus. And everybody says, amen. Then they said, and you also have to trust yourself to God's law. That's the problem. Believing on Jesus and entrusting yourself to God's law equals a fraudulent gospel. The but it's a very believable gospel. Believe on Jesus and do this and you will be saved. Because everything we know in life is merit-based. If I do, then I receive. But that is not on the buttons of the calculators of God's love. Just like it's not on the buttons of a calculator of loving our children. They don't have to do anything to receive the love. They just receive it by virtue of who they are to us, our beloved. And if we're God's beloved, then we don't have to do, perform, or act to be a recipient of his love. But the Galatians were believing otherwise. And Paul quickly gets at the Galatians in chapter 2, where he says this. He says, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. This is how you are made right with God. You are made right with God by faith. He says, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. Who's the even we ourselves? Us Jews and us Pharisees, whom God gave his 600 plus commands to obey. Know and understand, those of us who have come to Christ, that those laws didn't make us right with God because we could never attain them or keep them. Faith does it. He says this was, this, this was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, you've you got to highlight this in your Bible, if you, you may need to at one point, no human being will be justified. Which means no matter how obedient you are to God, I don't care if, you, I don't care if your mind is thinking Old Covenant, Mosaic Law, New covenant law of Christ. I don't care where your mind is thinking. No law is able to justify you. Faith justifies. Faith brings peace. 
Faith brings you closer to Jesus, closer to God. Faith, trust is what does it. In fact, this is what he says about people who are under the law. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Here's the reality. If you're trusting in both the law and in Jesus, you're effectively trusting in neither. It's a 50-50 proposition, but it doesn't work that way. Now, we're going to visit the beauty of the gospel more in a few moments. But what I want us to take note of contextually in this passage here is this. The false teacher's belief in a false gospel was largely the byproduct of cultural compromise. Let me say it again. The false teacher's belief in a false gospel was partly a byproduct of cultural compromise. Look at verse 12 in Galatians 6. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised. That's an obedience to the law. But only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. These Jews who claimed to believe in Jesus were simultaneously trusting in the law to avoid smoke with other Jews. They wanted to be accepted by both camps. They didn't want to be too Christian to not be Jewish anymore. And they didn't want to be too Jewish to not be able to claim Christ anymore. And so they believed and they propagated themselves to be some kind of theological mongrel half-breed. Well, we're just going to take a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of law, and I'm going to be accepted by the Jews for my law keeping and accepted by the Christians because I've trusted in Jesus. But the result is that they were rejected by both camps. We can relate to this as Christians in our day and age right now, because usually where our compromise for the truth of the gospel begins is in some kind of a cultural reality that sets in and grabs hold of us. That's usually where it starts. It doesn't start with a theological argument. People don't start rejecting Christ because of a theological reality. It's usually because of a hardship they've endured. It's more emotional. It's more cultural influence that draws people away from what's true and what's right. It's almost never the logic of an argument. Almost never. Have you ever felt, this is how you know it's here. Have you ever felt the pull of the pull of being an undercover Christian in a particular moment? You ever felt the squeeze of the culture trying to force you to conform to some kind of a standard or face the threat of being canceled publicly by your own people because you didn't conform or become whatever they wanted you to conform or become? You ever felt the weight of wanting to be on the right side of history? Beloved, you feel the heat of this reality when you live between two worlds and you want to be faithful to them both. We all live between two worlds. And we want to be faithful to both. But what happens when them two worlds collide on an issue? of irreconcilable difference. 
the human condition is to compromise, not to stand on either side. That's what we tend to do. I want my cake and I want to eat it too. The problem is both our cultural realities and our Lord demand unyielding loyalty. And so what do we tend to do with that unyielding loyalty? We compromise it and we try to take a little from this and a little from that world. In hopes of both of them accepting us, but what ends up happening? We've compromised the truth of the gospel on this side. And thus the the father says, depart from me, I never knew you. You didn't trust me. And then we accept the cultural reality on this side. But five minutes later, the culture shifted its view. And now you're too late and you're on the wrong side of history. And so both sides get rid of you. And you left wondering what happened. It's the cursed nature of compromise. Beloved, you're always going to fall for something unless you stand for something. This is what Jesus said. No one can serve two masters. Nobody. Since either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. In our text this morning, oh, real quick, what we tend to do is we tend to lean toward the one that we perceive to have the the least amount of bite. Which one am I going to get in more trouble for compromising? More trouble from the culture? I'm going to lean culture side. Because, you know, my faith ain't going to really bite me. It's forgiveness in Jesus. Or opposite. Our text this morning, we see that reality playing out. It says those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who will compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Beloved, let me talk straight to you this morning real quick. If you're a Christian in here this morning, understand that both this world and God want your loyalty. And you're going to feel pressure, the pressure of not wanting to be too Christian to fit into this world. But you're also not going to want to be so Christian, I'm sorry, so much of the world that you can't claim your Christian heritage, family or faith. You're going to find yourself in this predicament Those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus, because we live in this world. We live on that line between two worlds. We can live on the line, but we can't be loyal to both sides. Beloved, our culture, our political affiliations, our family traditions, our own ideas about truth and life, none of these supersede, thus saith the Lord. None of them do. So when the culture advocates for something that is unbiblical, I don't care if you miss the culture. You stand on God's word. When your political party advocates for something that is unbiblical, I don't care what else they believe. Your job is to stand on God's word. We should be unrecognizable politically. The culture shouldn't know what to do with us because there are elements of it that we rejoice in, we celebrate, we dance and jig to. But we don't have to accept it all. Because if you have given your life to the Lord Jesus, the political party, the entity, the movement doesn't own you. 
Beloved, we have to stop being afraid of people who don't love us. We need their approval. We have to do. Bump them. There's not a political pundit that loves you. They all liars. I don't know about all of them, but you know what I'm saying. They want to make a good impression in the flesh. And they want to avoid being persecuted. And so they shape their political policy to fit the most number of likes so that they can get elected. Two weeks later, they've evolved in their position once they've been elected. They don't care about you. There's not a movement that's for you that's not gospel-centered. The movement's for the movement, not for you. It'll steamroll you in a second. If you, but so, if you so much sneeze at it, look at it crooked, it'll run you right over. That's not love. But we find ourselves living between these two, and the pressures of them are real. Right? It's, it pulls me, and so I know it pulls you. Don't be afraid to be quick to be canceled. They can get canceled. Okay, just do it. Get it over with. Let the world not love you no more. If it means compromising your faith in Jesus, who actually loves me, I care less about the people who don't really love me. Because you don't cancel your child. You don't cancel the ones you love. You work with them. You sit with them. You listen to them. You reason with them. But you don't cancel them. But your political party will cancel you in a second. And the reality is, there's an inevitable collision that will happen in your life. There's an intersection point where you either have to choose, am I going to stand on the side of the culture, who I know doesn't love me, but the pressure's so thick, or am I going to stand on my faith in Jesus, his truth, his word? And the prophet Elijah instructs us in this. He says, Elijah approached all the people. And look what he said to them. It's so prophetic. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. What's the call? Make a decision today. Who it is you are going to follow. Make a decision today. Who it is that you're going to allow to influence you. Shape your mind and your thinking. Dictate the terms of your relations. Is it going to be the culture telling you you have to be or do something? Is it going to be your political affiliation that tells you that if you're a Republican, you can't shake hands with a Democrat? And if you're a Democrat, you can't shake hands? People won't even date across party lines no more. It's smoke. It's beef. It's problems. Why they got so much power over you? They don't love you. Beloved, as believers in the Lord Jesus, we have to be willing to go wherever the scripture takes us. If the scripture takes us toward the left, we go left. If the scripture takes us to the right, we go right. Not because of who's on the right or who's on the left. I don't care about them. We're going wherever the text navigates us. If the text says it, that's it. 
but we have to choose because at some point there's going to be a collision between this world and this world. And as Christians, we can remain faithful to our cultures and our heritages. Please do. So long as they don't violate the content of your faith. Anything that you have from your upbringing that violates the content of your faith needs to be expunged. Everything else can be celebrated. Because one will necessity be subservient to the other. Your culture is going to dictate everything or your faith is going to dictate everything. And it's going to be kind of like a lobster or a frog in boiling water. You put it in and you turn it on a slow boil and it doesn't jump out because it can't tell that it's, been cha- it's changing. All of a sudden you cooked and you won't even recognize it. If you try to live by both, you'll effectively live by neither. Just ask the false teachers and the recipients of the false teaching in Galatia. They didn't even believe fully the false teaching that they were spreading. Yet they kept pushing it in order to boast about the power of their movement. That's so modern. I'll listen to our modern day news stations and the people advocating for things. I'm like, dog, I don't even think you believe what you're saying. But the movement, the wave is so strong. They have to advocate. Because if they don't, they get canceled. They get canceled, they don't get put in office. They don't get put in office, they don't know who they are. And so they got to advocate for something that they may not even believe in fully because of the power of the movement. Look at Galatians 6.13. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves. They telling you, keep the law. That's how you get right with God. They ain't even keeping it. And yet, they want you to be circumcised. Why? Because the movement. In order to boast about your flesh. In order to say, look what we've done. Look what we're doing. Look at where we're going. Jump on the train. Close quarters with the mic off. I don't think this mug gonna work. But we got momentum. We gotta keep it rolling. I gotta make this. I gotta make this whatever striving goal that they have because it's a part of their identity. These Judaizers took great pride in being able to convince people to trust in Jesus and the law. But what Paul does is he's gonna encourage the Galatians to trust in Jesus alone by giving his own declaration of not caring what this world thinks about him. Paul says, y'all believe what y'all want. But Galatians 6.14, but as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world. Check this out. This is a statement of cancellation. See, I don't know. They, they, everybody, all the cultures are just steal stuff from the scriptures and change the words. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. Now, what's crazy is this. Who's saying this? The Apostle Paul. What would make the Apostle Paul say such a, sta- say such a bold, stark statement like that? If you guys know anything about Paul, Paul was a zealous for his culture. Look what he said. 
You've heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond my contemporaries among my people. Why? Because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Paul was all about the work, all about the movement, all about the traditions of his ancestors. Hard body. So much so he was out to persecute and destroy the people of God. That's Paul. How do you go from that statement to saying the world's been crucified to me? I don't boast in nothing but Jesus no more. Something had to happen to him. Something stopped mattering to him and something took over in his consciousness of what really mattered. He had an encounter with the power and beauty of the gospel. It brings you from extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors to I boast about nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what it does to you. It transfers you. Look at the the dichotomy. The the culture and our political positions or movements or parties claim to love us, but they force us to die for it. They use our skin color, whether you're white, brown, black, otherwise. They want to use your influence. They want to use your pocketbook all to forward the movement. And your return on investment is temporary clout and acceptance until the politics change or the movement ends. Then you find yourself on the wrong side of history, canceled or outside the camp. But the beauty of the gospel is that God is not calling you to die for him, at least not right away. God is first going to demonstrate his love for you by dying for you, giving his life for you. This is what it says in Romans 5.8. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, before we've even made a declaration of following He died for us. It's almost easier for me to believe that he died for me before I knew better. But what really breaks my soul and makes me weary on the inside and cry a little bit is the fact that he knows the sin that I've committed post-declaration. And yet he he knew it then. And he still decided to go to the cross. No movement is dying for you. No entity is dying for you. The Lord Jesus demonstrates what love looks like by fully already knowing every flaw and every sin. It says, that's okay, baby. I give my life to redeem the likes of you. And unlike the culture, God doesn't use your influence or your skin color, your finances to forward his mission. God uses the blood of his son and a heart of compassion 
to forward admission. He uses the sacrifice of his beloved one to redeem for himself an army of beloved. This is what the sin of disloyalty leads us to. It locks us up in chains that we can't, we can't necessarily feel, I mean that we can feel but we can't see. Our sin separates us from God because our loyalty is somewhere else and we know it and if we acknowledge it deep down, we hate it. We hate it. But the pressure of the movement keeps us there. The embarrassment and shame of being found out keeps us there. But it's only by the name of Jesus that we can be set free and reunited to God. The most used scripture in all of the Bible is one of the most beautiful. It says that God loved the world in this, in this way. This is how he did it. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And then he says this, the one who believes in the son has eternal life. But then there's a warning. Warning is a love language, beloved. Warning is a love language. Don't go that way. Why? Because I care about the way you go. Yeah. Right? But the one who rejects the son, be warned will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. My call for you this morning is to turn from your sin. Turn from other loyalties that are competing, vying for your attention. Turn from those things. Ask God to help you identify those things and face toward Jesus Christ. Because whoever believes is no longer a slave to the elements of this world, but they're a new creation in Christ. Saved from sin, transformed by the Spirit, beloved of God. That's what the scriptures say. Therefore, anyone who is in Christ, he's a new creation. Something that the world has never seen before. He doesn't fit this cultural category or this category. He's some kind of something different who celebrates the great redeemable realities of what this world has, but is not willing to give himself fully to those things so far as they compromise the faith. There's something different about them. They are abjectly loyal to this Lord, to this Jesus. I've been changed. I've been transformed. I used to be zealous about my traditions. But now I'm zealous about the Lord because he gave his life to redeem my soul. And now I can't help as a response of what he's done for me, but to love him and be loyal to him. I follow the law now, but not because it makes me right with him, because he made me right with him. Now I want to as a gratitude. I love God. What you need, B? That's the disposition that comes as a result of transformation of your soul.
This is why Paul went from a cultural killer to a Jesus-loving Christian. Paul is a new creation, and Jesus gave us life so that we can be new creations. That's what the text continues to say in Galatians. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. But both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. I don't want you to be ashamed of this, but if I ask you this question, I want you to answer it honestly. Do you want to be a new creation? Do you want freedom from sin? Do you want a relationship with God? Do you know in your heart that you need forgiveness for your lack of loyalty? All of that is found in the person of Jesus. No one else and nowhere else. Go somewhere else and get disappointed. Come to Christ and get liberated. Get set free. Get forgiven. Get transformed. If you want these things, I'm telling you that you need to repent and believe. You need to turn from whatever it was you were looking at and turn unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to follow him and let him transform you from the inside out. It's going to be a dogfight. The flesh is strong. So isn't Satan. But freedom in Christ is worth the price of war. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. And stop letting people who don't love you dictate the terms of your loyalty.